We now return to our show on John Kerry and his misrepresentations made to the Senate on September 3rd, 2013. The bottom of it is that this indicates that these munitions could not possibly have been fired at East Ghouta from the heart or from the eastern edge of the Syrian government-controlled areas that was shown in that very intelligence map published by the White House and provided by Kerry in the White House on August 30th of 2013. It reveals what Theodore Postel actually shared in an interview about the basic analysis of the weapon in that it showed that it wasn't capable of flying the six miles from the center of the Syrian government-controlled part of Damascus to the point of impact in the suburbs or even the 3.6 miles from the edges of government-controlled ground that the map was implying. So basically, according to the physicists, it was an impossibility that the carry scenario was presenting. So there is plenty of doubt. There is absolutely no absolute certainty that it was the Assad government that was responsible for the gas attack. As Kerry claimed and tried to cram down everybody's throat, literally, if you listen to the tone of his voice in making those assertions to begin his testimony in front of the Senate on September 3rd, 2013, just a week or two after the horrific gas attacks of August 21st, 2013. So to be clear, what makes Kerry's claim so misleading and deceitful is his claim of absolute certainty that it was Assad who was responsible for the August 21st, 2013 gas attack. I want to reiterate that I'm not absolutely certain regarding all these assertions, but I am confident that the preponderance of evidence is consistent with my assertions. I am confident because of my means and methods of research, which has created a long record of greater accuracy than mainstream news sources, as evidenced by taped shows. Studying alternative news accounts and becoming more fluent in the history of the United States foreign policy and those of its allies, as well as the connected issues, has allowed me to better predict tendencies. They are a matter of public record because we have taped most all of our shows over the last 18 years of broadcasting. With respect to Syria, we were coming to conclusions and reporting them as best we could understand them. Then months later, Seymour Hirsch comes out with his groundbreaking investigative journalism articles, Who's Saren, that was published by London Review of Books on December 8, 2013, and that was followed several months later on April the 17th, 2014, with the Red Line and the Rat Line article that was also published by London Review of Books. These articles, their claims were consistent with my own findings, and they come from perhaps the most resourceful investigative journalist of the last couple of generations. Robert Perry, another great top-shelf investigative journalist with very few peers and a friend before his passing, found Cy Hirsch's controversial claims he made throughout these two articles credible as well. There is perhaps no other journalist committed to honest investigative journalism and who is unafraid to go and follow wherever his investigations and his sources take him. A former well-deserving Pulitzer Prize winner, who's also won a number of other journalist awards, who is entering his octogenarian decade, surely has more reliable sources throughout the very government we study and try to understand than most anyone in the history of investigative journalism. So returning to the task at hand, 
The credibility of John Kerry when it comes to Syria and the Syria gas attack on August 21st, 2013, in addition to the evidence we suggest contradicts Kerry's claims that with complete certainty it was Assad who gassed his, his own people that day, there's additional circumstantial evidence to support our claim as well that questions as deceitful the certainty of Kerry's claims that it was Assad government who launched the Syrian gas attacks of August 21st, 2013. They include, first, the knowledge of Assad government of the arrival of the UN inspectors that had just arrived days before and were in the vicinity in the neighborhood. Why would the Assad government wait until just after they arrived to use sarin gas? Secondly, by all reliable accounts, the Assad government forces had taken the decisive offensive advantage in the war against the opposition forces. They were clearly winning the war. As Hirsch claims in his April 17, 2014 Red Line and the Rat Line article, Quote, by the end of 2012, it was believed throughout the American intelligence community that the rebels were losing the war. In the same article, Hirsch writes, quote, a U.S. intelligence consultant told me that a few weeks before August 21st, he saw a highly classified briefing prepared for Dempsey and the Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel, which described the acute anxiety of the Erdogan administration in Turkey about the rebels' dwindling prospects. The analysis warned that the Turkish leadership had expressed, quote, the need to do something that would precipitate a U.S. military response, end quote. By late summer, the Syrian army still had the advantage over the rebels, the former intelligence officials said, and only American air power could turn the tide. In the autumn, the former intelligence official went on. The U.S. intelligence analysts who kept working on the events of August 21st sensed that Syria had not done the gas attack. In other words, there was every motive for an event to happen to draw the U.S. into an overt military conflict presence to turn the tide on behalf of the Assad opposition of the war on the ground. Put another way, what evidence points to the contrary? Why would the rebel jihadist-led military opposition do it, referring to, of course, the gas attack? What would be their motivations? Well, there's at least two they were losing the conflict despite the military aid and funding that they were receiving by Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and other Gulf monarchies. And secondly, they knew if the red line was crossed by Syria, France and UK had promised to militarily intervene, which would reverse the military advantage on the ground. So this leads us to the third Kerry misrepresentation, namely the implication by Kerry that Assad had lost the military advantage on the ground against the terrorist opposition and were therefore losing grip on power. To quote Kerry directly, okay, he says, quote, we're here because a dictator and his family personal enterprise in their lust to hold on to power were willing to infect the air of Damascus with a poison that killed innocent mothers and fathers and hundreds of their children their lives all snuffed out by gas in the early morning of August 21st, 2013. The implication, the false implication, the third misrepresentation Kerry is making is clear, and it is false, namely that regarding the Syrian government and opposition forces, the military situation on the ground to reverse or tip the scales in their favor using Syrian gas became a more attractive option to the Assad regime. Yet all indications were the opposite, that Assad had the upper hand, clearly the upper hand, and therefore the opposite was true. So a fourth misrepresentation by Kerry was minimizing the size and impact of the proposed airstrikes and that we were not 
tipping the scales. So to change the regime through military action, Senator Jean Shaheen, the Democrat from New Hampshire, during the Senate hearing, asked the question, would the proposed intervention tip the military scales of advantage from one side to the other? So here, again, Kerry misleads the American public as well as Congress by saying the action, if it is authorized, the answer is, as I said in my opening comments, that the consequence of degrading his chemical capacity inevitably, referring to Assad, will also have a downstream impact on his military capacity. This authorization is a limited, targeted effort to focus on deterring and degrading the chemical weapons capacity of the Assad regime, not to grossly affect this military situation on the ground was the implication here. Senator Jeannie Shaheen went on, but according to the president and to your testimony today, we don't want to tip the scales on the ground. And Kerry responds, Senator Shaheen, the president has made it very, very clear that the policy of this administration, and sometimes people have sort of said, you know, question precisely what that is, and I'll tell you precisely what it is, The president is asking for the Congress to take steps that will specifically deter and degrade Assad's capacity to use chemical weapons. He is not asking Congress for authorization to become a whole hog involved serious civil war to try to change the regime through military action. But according to the Red Line, Rat Line article by Seymour Hirsch, the intervention would be much larger than what Kerry was implying and overtly stating. Quote, in the aftermath of the 21st of August attack, Obama ordered the Pentagon to draw up targets for bombing. Early in the process, the former intelligence official said the White House rejected 35 target sets provided by the Joint Chiefs of Staff as being insufficiently painful to the Assad regime, end quote. The original targets included only military sites and nothing, by the way, of civilian infrastructure. But under White House pressure, the U.S. attacks plan evolved into a monster strike. Two wings of B-52 bombers were shifted to air bases close to Syria, and Navy submarines and ships equipped with Tomahawk missiles were deployed. Every day, the target list was getting longer, the former intelligence officer told me. The Pentagon planners said we can't use only Tomahawks to strike at Syria's missile sites because their warheads are buried too far below the ground, so the two B-52 air wings with 2,000-pound bombs were assigned to the mission. Then we'll need standby search and rescue teams to recover down pilots and drones for target selection. It becomes huge. The new target list was meant to completely eradicate any military capabilities Assad had, the former intelligence officer said. The core targets included electric power grids, oil and gas depots, all known logistic and weapons depots, all known command and control facilities, and all known military and intelligence buildings. Britain and France were both to play a part. On the 29th of August, the day Britain Parliament voted against Cameron's bid to join the intervention, the Guardian reported that he had already ordered six RAF Typhoon fighter jets to be deployed to Cyprus and had volunteered a submarine capable of launching Tomahawk missiles. The French Air Force, a crucial player in the 2011 strikes on Libya, was deeply committed, according to an account in Le Nouvel Observatoire. Francois Hollande, the French president, had ordered several Rafale fighter bombers to join the American assault. Their targets were reported to be in western Syria. By the last days of August, the president had given the Joint Chiefs of Staff a fixed deadline for the launch. H hour was to begin no later than Monday morning, the 2nd of September, a massive assault to neutralize Assad, the former intelligence official said. 
So it was a surprise to many when during a speech at the White House Rose Garden on August 31st, Obama, and this is 2013, just four days before this hearing, said that the attack would be put on hold and he would turn to Congress and put it to a vote. But clearly the most important deceit is the fifth deceit that Kerry projected to the American public via the September 3rd, 2013 Senate hearing. And that was his minimization and denial of the content of the opposition forces. Fighting Assad. Kerry maintained the myth that the opposition was moderate in composition and that the concern that it was in fact a terrorist-led military opposition was misguided and incorrect. It was the most important deceit because it is the greatest portrayal of our family members of those we lost on 9-11 that in fact the opposition that's been fighting the Assad government ever since 2011 has been dominantly led by these very terrorists that took down 9-11 in New York City. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing on September 3rd, 2013, this fifth big lie, if you will, was that the opposition is increasingly becoming more moderate rather than more dominated by al-Qaeda or other terrorist offsprings. Senator Ron Johnson, Republican from Wisconsin, asked John Kerry, what do we know about the opposition? I mean, we've been tracking them for now the last two years. I mean, it seems like, and this is more of an impression I have as opposed to any exact knowledge, but it seems like initially the opposition was maybe more Western-leaning, more moderate, more democratic, and as time has gone by, it's degraded, become more infiltrated by al-Qaeda. Is that basically true? What has happened? Kerry responded, quote, no, that is no. That is actually basically not true. It's basically incorrect. The opposition has increasingly become more defined by its moderation, more defined by the breadth of its membership, and more defined by its adherence to some, you know, democratic process to an all-inclusive minority protecting constitution, which will be broad-based and secular with respect to the future of Syria. And that's very critical. Harry goes on, I think we need to talk about this in our classified session. But let me just say to you, in terms of opposition numbers, you see ranges of 80,000, 90,000, 100,000 in total opposition. You see ranges from, well, I don't want to go into all the numbers, but in the tens of thousands in terms of operative active combatants. I've seen some recent data on the numbers of the extremists in al-Nusra. They're actually lower than former expectations. Kerry continues, I would also say to you, Syria historically has been secular, and the vast majority of Syrians, I believe, want to remain secular. It's our judgment and the judgment of our good friends who actually know a lot of this in many ways better than we do because it's their region, their neighborhood. I'm talking about the Saudis, the Emirates, the Qataris, the Turks, the Jordanians. They all believe that if you could have a fairly rapid transition, the secular component of Syria will reemerge and you will isolate. And then that's the end of his comment. I presume the jihadists. And just think for a second. Think of what he's saying. It just makes no sense. He cites these Gulf monarchies, the Saudis, who are the greatest perpetuators of the arming and funding of these uh, jihadist terrorists. Again, these Gulf monarchies, these countries without constitutions, are going to help us promote democracy in Syria. He talks about the Saudis, 
The other friends that he refers to uh, allegedly are the Emirates, the Qataris, the Turks, and the Jordanians. And we know that in addition to the Gulf monarchies, the Turks have been the greatest resource outside of the Gulf monarchies there of enabling these terrorists to keep their foothold in the opposition elements that have been fighting the Syrian government. We don't have time to get into it tonight, but clearly the opposition forces in Syria have been fanned and armed and funded by either the United States, the UK, and or its very close allies in the region, the Saudis, and these other Gulf monarchies, and the Turks, etc. In fact, even the New York Times, in an article that they published back well before this hearing, April 27, 2013, the New York Times published a, an article, Islamist Rebels Create Dilemma on Syria Policy by Ben Hubbard of the New York Times. He basically indicates that nowhere in rebel-controlled Syria is there a secular fighting force to speak of. This is back four months or so before the September 2013 Senate hearing we're reporting on here. The article actually starts with this paragraph. In Syria's largest city, Aleppo, rebels aligned with al-Qaeda control the power plant, run the bakeries, and head a court that applies Islamic law. Elsewhere, they have seized government oil fields, put employees back to work, and now profit from the crude they produce. Across Syria, rebel-held areas are dotted with Islamic courts staffed by lawyers and clerics and by fighting brigades led by extremists. Even the Supreme Military Council, the umbrella rebel organization whose formulation the West had hoped would sideline the radical groups is stocked with commanders who want to infuse Islamic law into the future Syrian government. Nowhere in rebel-controlled Syria is there a secular fighting force to speak of. This is four months before Kerry is here lying to the American public about how the opposition is overwhelmingly of a moderate composition. It wasn't, and it never was. So the last misrepresentation that Kerry presented during the hearings that I wanted to address tonight was related to the question of whether there was any intelligence dissent that Kerry was aware of. Senator Barbara Boxer, the Democrat from California on that Senate committee that we've been talking about, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that held that hearing on September 3rd, 2013, Again, just a couple of weeks after the gas attack of August the 21st, 2013, Senator Boxer says, but my question is, was there any argument about the fact that they agree and there's a high confidence that these weapons were used by the Assad regime was a question. Was there any debate? I mean, there was debate. Was there any dissension between the various agencies? So she's basically asking of whether there was any dissent. Secretary of State Kerry responds, the intelligence community represented by the DNI Clapper has released a public document, unclassified, available for all to see, in which they make their judgment with high confidence that the facts are as they've been set forth. So, you know, I think that speaks for itself. But Senator Boxer continues, out of all the different agencies, because I remember Iraq, sure, eventually the word came down, everyone agreed, but then we found out there was disagreement. To your knowledge, did they come to the same conclusion, the various intelligence agencies? I was wondering why the intelligence leaders, the director of the CIA, John Brennan, the director of the intelligence or the national intelligence, James Clapper, not giving this testimony instead of the White House. Why is it that the intelligence overview comes from the White House and not from the intelligence agencies themselves? 
Why was there not an NIE if there's such a consensus as Kerry is projecting? But Secretary Kerry, his words were, to my knowledge, I have no knowledge of any agency that was a dissenter. So again, here we have evidently the most knowledgeable and trustworthy representative of the Obama administration who has access to all classified material and presumably would know if there was any dissenting opinions that would challenge the certainty in which he's accusing the Assad government of those 8-21-2013 sarin gas attacks, clearly saying there was no dissent or anybody who had an alternative theory. And I do know, I think it's safe to say, says Kerry, that they had a whole team that ran a scenario to try to test their theory to see if there was any possibility that they can come up with an alternative view as who might have done it, and the answer, they could not. Senator Boxer continues, Okay, last questions on intel in Russia. I read, and I didn't know if this is true or false, but I read in one of the publications today that members of the Russian parliament were going to come here to lobby colleagues here to tell colleagues that there is no such intelligence, that there is no proof. So, you know, what are they clinging to here? She asked Carrie again. How could they make that case, given what you have said? Carrie says, I honestly don't know. I mean, there's no way for me to hang a hat on what it is. I think that I've had the personal conversations with the foreign minister. They make an argument to some effect that we don't have evidence and that the opposition did it. No matter what you show, that's the argument they take. Now, as to why they do that or what the rationale is, I'm not going to speculate. According to the Seymour Hersh 2014 April Redline Ratline article, he writes the following, and this would be on or about the date of this actual Senate hearing. At this stage, Obama's premise that only the Syrian army was capable of deploying sarin was unraveling. Within a few days of the 21st of August attack, the former intelligence official told me Russian military intelligence operatives had recovered samples of the chemical agent from Gotha and they analyzed it and passed it on to the British military intelligence. This was the material sent to Port and Down. A spokesperson for Port and Down said many of the samples analyzed in the UK tested positive for the nerve agent sarin. The former intelligence official said that the Russian who delivered the sample to the UK was a good source, someone with access, knowledge, and a record of being trustworthy. The UK defense staff who relayed the Port and Down findings to the Joint Chiefs were sending the Americans a message, were being set up, the former intelligence official said. This account made sense of a terse message a senior official in the CIA sent in late August. It was not the result of the current regime. The UK and US know this. By then, the attack was a few days away, and American, British, and French planes, ships, and submarines were at the ready. The officer ultimately responsible for planning and execution of the attack was General Martin Dempsey, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. From the beginning of the crisis, the former intelligence official said the Joint Chiefs had been skeptical of the administration's argument that it had the facts to back up its belief of Assad's guilt for the gas attack. There was no way the Joint Chiefs thought Syria would use nerve gas at that stage because Assad was winning the war, the former intelligence official said. Dempsey's view after 21 of August was that a U.S. strike on Syria under the assumption that the Assad government was responsible for the sarin attack would be a military blunder, the former intelligence official said. 
The Port and Down report caused the Joint Chiefs to go to the President with a more serious worry that the attack sought by the White House would be an unjustified act of aggression. It was the Joint Chiefs who led Obama to change course. This again, according to the article Redline and Ratline by Seymour Hirsch, published in 2014 of April. So in conclusion, in August 2013, after the sarin attack in the Damascus suburb of Ghouta, Obama was ready to launch an airstrike on Syria for allegedly crossing the red line he had set in 2012 on the use of chemical weapons. Obama changed his mind because of research conducted at Porton Down, the UK Defense Laboratory. British intelligence had obtained a sample of the sarin used in the attack and analysis demonstrated that the gas did not match the Syrian army's chemical weapons arsenal. This, again, according to Seymour Hersh's work. This show has been about John Kerry and U.S. foreign policy under the administration of Obama. Joe Biden was vice president, and I think the character of John Kerry is reflected in the inconsistencies and misrepresentations that we've gone over tonight in the testimony that he promoted on September 3rd, 2013 to the Senate Syria continues to be misrepresented by the mainstream press, and its misrepresentations are largely a result of its just reiterating what our government says. And what our government says is what we have critiqued this evening. So I hope this helps you in consideration of what to believe and what not to believe when it comes to U.S. foreign policy in Syria. We'll see you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity. All his own love